up to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we are diving into this morning in God's Word. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, uh, there's some people walking around with some. You could just slip your hand up and they would gladly give that to you. Don't worry. No reason to be embarrassed. Just slip your hand up. Uh, but you'll definitely need that. We're using it for sure. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15 this morning. Um, now, uh, this morning, uh, it's my goal to make you very uncomfortable, okay? Um, and so I was trying to rack my brain, how can I do that? And so I decided, hey, let's talk about money, okay? Um, just kidding, okay? My goal is not to make you squirm uh, this morning at all, but uh, I do actually want to talk about money, okay? But not just money, because that would be falling very short with what this is all about. Uh, we are after something much bigger, something far more grand than just money. This morning, uh, I want us to sit under God's word and hear what he has to say regarding generosity, generosity. Uh, it's definitely an awkward topic, uh, for sure, um, especially since uh, church history is filled with greedy people and greedy churches who have abused money and, and abused people on behalf of money. Uh, it's a very awkward topic because of that, but, but this topic is in God's word, and, and more so, it's very prevalent, and it's very important, so we must address it. But even though this topic isn't easy, we must put it on the table, because more than that, I would think, what we do with our money, why this is so important is because what we do with our money and the generosity level of our lives, you guys, is a huge, huge discipleship issue. Huge. What we do with our money says a lot about our hearts. That's why this is so important. This will be on the screen. Uh, I once read this a couple years ago, and it really rocked me. Um, a pastor, a former pastor in New York City named Tim Keller once said, money flows generously to that which is its God. Money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. So that means there's things, and you know this, that your money just, you release to things, and it's joyful, it's, it's painless. But there are other things that, that you spend your money on, whether it is like, paying your cell phone bill or your utilities or whatever it might be for you, and it's a little more painful. It's necessary, but you don't really enjoy it, but there is a lot of things in our lives that our money just effortlessly flows to, and I would bet that if you would examine your heart a little bit this morning, that thing that it effortlessly and joyfully flows to might actually be your God, and so this morning, I know it's early, guys. I know it's like 10 a.m.-ish. But we're going to take a little, tent, uh, a little test, okay? Is that okay? You guys entertain me on this? All right, a little test. You ready? Get our brains working this morning. Okay, this small test, I think, can begin to show us where our money effortlessly flows to, all right? So I'm just going to list off a few things and then ask you a question, right? So I want you to imagine this morning, okay? I want you to imagine this morning that I asked you. I said, I want you to set aside 10% of your income each month for the purpose of taking a luxury trip to Paris one day. So you gotta set aside 10% every month and one day you get to cash it in on a luxury trip to Paris. 
hey, if you don't like France or I don't know, like just pick another European city or wherever you want to go in the world, all right? Inter, you know, indulge me, okay? But I want you to set aside that money that you can do that, you can cash in one day. Or imagine, I want you to set aside 10% of your income each month and in doing so, you get to upgrade all your technology in life to the latest and greatest thing that you drool over, okay? Or again, I want you to set aside 10% of your income each month to update your wardrobe and you get to go shopping on a massive spree on two big sales a year, but you're gonna always have what's in, okay? And you're gonna love it. Or lastly here, I want you to set aside 10% of your income each month and you get to choose what thing in your house what thing in your yard you're going to landscape or remodel, and you're going to do the thing you've always dreamt of doing in your house, okay? When I, when I pose those to you, like pick your poison, okay, or whatever it is that seems most interesting to you, okay, what is your emotional response to that? What is it? If you're anything like me, I mean, you're on board, right? Aren't you on board? Is anybody taking this test? Are you guys on board? Yes, right? Why? Well, because all of those things are a benefit to yourself. They all come back to you. Now, let me pose a little bit different of a test to you, okay? Tell me your emotional response to this following, these following things, okay? What if I asked you, I want you to set aside 10% of your income each month to help those who are unemployed in your church family? Or I want you to set aside 10% of your income each month to help people recover from their drug addiction. Or I want you to set aside 10% of your income each month to help pay off all the debts of the people who are in your community group. What is your emotional response to that? See, if we were to just be honest, I think for a moment this morning, okay, for many of us, it would be safe to say that we are doing pretty well in our race with the world. Sadly though, very sadly I would say, most of our attention and our affection and our energy are actually flowing toward the exact same things that the world is, is flowing towards. We don't look much different than everybody else when it comes to the area of our finances. And our passage this morning shows us that it should not be that way. It just shouldn't. There should be a strange generosity that you and I are marked by if you're a follower of Jesus. So if you haven't already, please turn again to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're in verses 1 through 15 this morning. And uh, you can follow on your paper branch notes as always to kind of see where we're going this morning. And it's really important. This passage is so beautiful as I got to study it uh, a lot this week. And in these 15 verses, you'll see... Um, uh, what in, in literature or um, especially in scripture, you'll see something called a chiastic structure. I just put it on the screen for you. It'll help you know where I'm going with this. Uh, but you see these bookends, these examples of what a generous, otherworldly type of generosity looks like. Then you see in the, the two middle sections surrounding that or underneath that then, you'll see this encouragement for us to be generous ourselves. And then right in the middle, the big point is this question like, why should we be generous? And we get an incredible response to that question. Okay, so first we're looking at what otherworldly generosity looks like. So I'm gonna read verses one through five here, follow with me. It says in verse one, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. 
For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I could testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Okay, so it's really important to realize what's happening here because there is a church, the church, the followers of Christ in Jerusalem, which are mainly made up of, of Jews who have converted to Christianity, so they're Jewish Christians. They were being persecuted terribly and they were you know, getting hit by it. And they were suffering from this sort of financial famine because of this persecution. And so Paul, he's going around to all these Gentile churches and he's requesting that they give generously so that he can bring this money from church churches like places in Ephesus, to Macedonia, to Corinth, and he can bring all this money down to Jerusalem to help fund the relief efforts of this persecuted church. And so we are told here about this amazing example of this church in Macedonia because they are very poor and they're giving beyond their means to this Jewish Christian church. And Paul here, he describes them as being in, quote, extreme poverty, and this Greek word literally means that this Macedonian church was in extreme poverty like a beggar, deep down, down to the bottom. That's what it literally means. A beggar, deep down, down to the bottom. That's this extreme poverty. But somehow this poor, afflicted, persecuted church is joyfully giving above and beyond their means. It's strange. It doesn't even like compute, okay? Do you see what's going on here? This is like terrible uh, math by Paul in verse two. If you look in verse two, it's terrible math. It doesn't make sense. It would make, you know, David Kozlicki in this room, you'd make your stomach churn, okay? It's awful math, okay? Uh, and this will be on the screen, this math equation that he presents for us. Basically, when you read verse two, you see this math equation. These people have joy plus severe affliction plus they have poverty and somehow that equals wealth. Right, that doesn't even like add up, right? That's, that's terrible math. Well, what's going on here? And we, looked, we listened uh, last week. We learned about the, uh, the nation of Haiti, right? And Haiti is the poorest country in the Western Hemisphere. What's happening here, what Paul is describing, would be somewhat to the equivalent of a church in Haiti in their poverty, pooling together their finances and resources and sending them to Corvallis to help people that are here. I mean, this is sort of this upside down, this doesn't compute sort of generosity, okay? So how is this otherworldly example of generosity possible? Well, don't miss what it says in verse one. This effectual change in this poor Macedonian church is what? It says the grace of God that has been given among the churches. It's God's grace that has shaped them into being these people who look into their own poverty and somehow they feel very rich, rich enough to give well above and beyond their means. Why? Because of the, the grace of God in their lives. I mean, this word grace actually comes up here 10 times in this chapter and in this following chapter, which are both these, both these chapters, they're centered around this idea of generosity. See, when people are spontaneously generous towards others, Paul takes it as clear evidence that God's grace is actually working in them and through them. 
It is interesting that Paul understands that God's grace does not lighten the Macedonians' afflictions, nor does it remove their deep poverty. Instead, it actually opens up their hearts and their purse strings, if you will. Only the experience of grace can do that. Only grace can do that. Uh, I hate to shatter your perception of me this morning, uh, but I am not a former Olympian, okay? I'm not as athletic as it might seem, okay? But I did once read a USA Today article about people who have won Olympic medals, okay? So I'm sort of qualified, okay? Um, the article that I read cites that it surveyed the happiness and contentment level of people who had won the gold, people who had won the silver, and people who had won the bronze medal. No surprises here. The people who win the gold, happiest, or the happiest people out of all three medalists, okay? But the second happiest and most content people might surprise you because it's not the silver medalist, it's actually the people who won bronze, okay? Silver came in last when in terms of their happiness and contentment. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Well, because it's all, it's all because of their posture and their thinking when they received their medal. Because what happens is this, silver medalists get on the podium and they think, man, I came so close to winning gold. Bronze medalists get up there and they think, I almost didn't even get a medal. I'm so grateful to be on this podium, right? Do you see the difference? One person reflects on what they have and they're grateful for it. The other reflects on what they don't have and they're upset about it. See, in the same way, if your whole life is grace, which is what we understand if you are a Christian, your whole life is one of grace. That changes the way we view everything from our time to our talents, to our skills, to our bank accounts, to our stuff. It changes the way we view everything. I mean, just think about this for a second. You didn't choose to be born where you were born. You didn't choose that, anybody, right? Come and talk to me if you did, right? That'd be like the secret here, right? No one chose that. No one chose what parents you would have when you were born, right? No one in here created themselves. No one in here caused themselves to breathe this morning or to have life. I mean, even your job, if you're a Christian, you, you realize that God gave you that job. I mean, if anything, he gave you the ability, right, to even have the skills and the knowledge and, and, and the wherewithal and the personality to even do what you do successfully and to do it well. You're wired a certain way by God, right? We are the bronze medalists, and we're so grateful to be here and to even have what we have. And so this truth in our lives, it causes us to view stuff differently because we begin to see that 100% of what we have is God's. It's not ours. We are actually stewards of it. I mean, we see this principle of viewing all you have as God's because of his grace being practiced here in this church in verse 5. Because what does it say in verse 5? It says, and this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first 
to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Paul says that these people gave themselves first to the Lord, which this is a reference to the concept of a tithe, if you will, okay? Or in the Old Testament, it's the concept of giving of your first fruits to God, realizing all that I have is God's, and so I'm going to give right off the top the best thing that I have back to God. They gave themselves first to God. That's what, it's, that's what this means here. But here in Macedonia, they didn't just do that. It says they went well above and beyond, and they gave to Paul in order to bring funds to the suffering church in Jerusalem, okay? Let me tell you, uh, the same should be true for us today, what we see here in Macedonia, this principle of, of giving a, a, a first fruit offering, you know, right off the top of, of your income or right off the top of your skills or your ability or your time towards God. Why? Because that cultivates a heart that understands that all I have is from God. That's what it does. I'll be, I'll be completely honest with you. I grew up with no money, okay? My parents, we did not have any money, okay? just enough to live off of. And so if I wanted money, because I didn't get an allowance, I had to mow like our two-acre yard, and when I did that, I got $2.50, right? And if I really wanted to cash in, I had to go clean up all the dog poop in our yard, okay? I got five bucks for that, right? I feel like it was like child labor or something. So when I became a paper boy in eighth grade, and I got my first monthly paycheck of $100, my mind was blown, okay? I literally was like, I am the richest person in the world. I had never seen more money in my life. But what's strange is that didn't produce this Macedonian church stuff in my heart. It, it, that's not what happened. I had a mentality that says, man, I worked for this, and I, I don't really have any money anyways, and so it's mine. It's, it's mine. I, I, I deserve this. And so my entire life, honestly, until I married uh, Elizabeth, I struggled with the concept of giving anything that I, I, had, I had earned away, let alone like in the form of a first fruit offering or like a tithe sort of offering. And so I, I will confess, even I worked as an intern in a church in college, and, and one day my pastor actually pulled me aside one day and lovingly, I'm so grateful he did this, he lovingly confronted me on how I, supposed to, I, I was supposed to be an example uh, to our church, and yet I, even as an intern, supposed to be an example in all things, I wasn't even tithing to my local church family to support the ministry that I was giving my life away to. So man, I'm so grateful for my wife, and honestly, because she grew up with a more generous heart principle, more of a Macedonian heart principle of this first fruits giving than, than I did. And so she, she challenged me when we were first married with her generosity, and so the interesting thing is this, is when we start, when we got married, we started tithing to our church. It wasn't even like an option, basically. But see, this is the thing. I went from saying, no, I'm not going to give anything that I have away, because it's mine, 100% is mine, to agreeing and going, okay, yeah, 10% is God's, 90% is mine, but that wasn't enough. It was actually by God's grace and because of the work that he did through my wife in my life that we've come to the point where we realize, no, that's not even it. It's 100%. It's God's. So even when I give anything away, I don't look at the rest of the 90% and all of a sudden go, all right, now this is mine. I look at the rest of the 90% and I go, God, what do you want me to do with this? It's your money. It's still your money. 
And so I think we actually see a further example of what we should actually potentially do with that remaining 90% in verses 12 through 15. Look down at verse 12. It says this. It says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Let's be honest here for a second. We read that. Uh, 12, 13, 14, we might cringe a little bit, right? That doesn't sound very, I don't know, American, right? That doesn't uh, really fit with our free market principles, right? Doesn't sound like capitalism, does it? Sounds like, I don't know, <clears throat> like socialistic or something, right? That's kind of what you read. When you, when you, that's kind of maybe what you feel when you, when you read that, right? Why? Because everyone's just like sharing and helping each other out so no one has any lack. But this, this isn't capitalism, that's for sure. And Qual, Paul here quotes from the Exodus story in verse 15 to show you what he's even talking about. This is really important, okay? Because what he quotes from is the story in Exodus where God leads his people out into the wilderness, Okay? And they're complaining, and they're grumbling, because they're in the wilderness. I mean, who really wants to be homeless in the wilderness, right? I mean, no one wants to be that way, especially with a ton of kids and all these other people around. Plus, they are hungry, and wilderness cuisine is, is not that great, right? But God, in his love, miraculously, in the Exodus story, he provides daily food from heaven for them that they end up calling manna. Because they're hungry, and God's like, I will daily provide for you food. It's miraculous food. You'll walk out of your tent. It'll be on the ground. You take what you need for the day. So people who need a lot, they take a lot. People who don't need as much, they take just a little bit. And it's always exactly what they need. But if they take too much, and they try to hoard it, they try to store it up, it goes bad. It goes to waste, basically. And God says, I will provide for you. So they walk out of their tents one morning, and they see it on the ground, and they literally go, what is that? That's, that's what they say. They go, what is it? And that's what they ended up calling that food. So you'd be like, what's for dinner? It's what is it, right? Manna means what is it? That's what they called this stuff, okay? It's God miraculously providing for them from heaven, okay? And so this verse 15, it comes from the spot in that story where God told them to do this, to gather as much as they needed. So what in the world does manna in this story from Exodus have to do with what's going on here in this church and what Paul is wanting to see happen in, in the Corinth church? Well, you see in that Exodus story, God miraculously providing for his people, and the same thing is true here in this story. It's just not with manna. God is still doing what God does. He is miraculously calling his church to provide for his people through his people. Do you see that? God is miraculously wanting to provide for people, but the way he's doing that is through his people, not just through miraculously having food appear on the ground in the morning. See, this is, this is really, really important. 
This is a call not just to look inward at our own needs, but to look outwardly and to meet the needs of other people because that's what God is doing. And see, this will only happen if you see that all you have is God's. If God's grace is working through you like it is here in the Macedonian church, we see that we are the middleman. We're the conduit, if you will. What we have is not ours, it is God's, and we are actually stewards of it. And so God wants to provide for others and impact the world through us. Through us. Christmas is coming up, you guys. You guys like Christmas? We enjoy Christmas, okay? Let's just imagine this morning that you bought the perfect gift for someone you really loved, okay? Maybe it's a boyfriend or girlfriend or a spouse or a mom or dad or a kid or something, okay? And you wrapped that thing well because you're apparently great at wrapping, okay? And you put it in a cardboard box and you... You write the address on it or whatever, and you hand it to a FedEx guy, okay? You say, hey, deliver this puppy. What would you think if the FedEx guy was like, sweet, thanks, took the package to his house, opened it up, and was like, I've always wanted this. This is awesome, right? You'd be like, you're a terrible FedEx guy, right? You're a jerk. Like, that's not what you're supposed to do with this thing. Like, you are bad at your job. You don't understand your job, do you? Why? Because a FedEx guy, what are they? They're the middleman, right? They're a conduit. They're supposed to take something and get it to the right person. In the same exact way, this Macedonian church realizes that they're the FedEx guy. And so joy plus severe affliction plus poverty equals wealth to them, right? They've experienced God's grace, and because of God's grace, they're conduits of God's provision and conduits of God's love for other people. What an amazing example of otherworldly generosity for this church in Corinth, and what an amazing example for us today. But we also see the second thing, this call for us to grow in otherworldly generosity ourselves. That's what we have this call, starting in verse 6. He says, accordingly, We urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. But then also look down at verse 10, he encourages them further. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. So this example of this Macedonian church's generosity was not meant to shame the Corinthian church into this sort of competition thing. But it was intended to be an example to them. But, but Paul isn't just doing a storytelling session like, hey, check out this church. And everyone's like, wow, that's, uh, that's amazing, right? And so um, that's good for them. That's a cool story, Paul. That, that's, not, that's not the point because Paul says in verse 6 that they should what? Complete this act of grace also. He wants them to see that this is possible for their lives too. And we see something very convicting here, if you noticed it, in this encouragement from Paul. He says, guys, you strive to excel in faith. You strive to excel in speech. You strive to excel in knowledge of Scripture and in earnestness and in love, which are all amazing things, but they are, too, in the same way, strive for this generosity. 
In the same way that you would strive for all those other things, I want you to strive for generosity. So this morning, if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, the question is this, do you look at generosity? Do you see your finances? Do you see your stuff? Do you see your time? Do you see your skills or your talents as an area of your life that you want to strive to excel in giving away? Do you strive for that? Do you see it as a rival in importance to your understanding of even scripture, gaining more knowledge? Do you see it as just as important as displaying love or exhibiting faith or as important as the things that you actually talk about, like your speech? Do you see it as important potentially as evangelism and sharing the gospel with people? That's, that's what Paul is saying. He's saying strive to excel in your generosity equal as much as you strive in your ability to understand the things of God that are found in Scripture. But I love his further encouragement to them in verses 10 through 11 because he goes on to commend them on the steps that they have been taking, on what they have been taking. They've started this fund of money that will go to Jerusalem and he's saying, that's great, right? Keep going, don't stop, strive for greater generosity, you guys. And so maybe you look at your resources right now in your life and you're sitting here and you're like, Josh, I literally, I don't have any money, okay? Well, honestly, I totally get it. I, I really do, I get it. So that's not the point. I, the point is to examine your life in, in really every aspect of it. To ask yourself, how generous are you being with your time or your stuff or any of that? Or, or with the very little that you do have, if it's really God's, what would it look like to take even like a baby step in your life, to strive to excel in generosity? Because Paul is commending their step of generosity, but he's also saying, take another step. Take another one. I mean, just remember our example, this Macedonian church. The example is to give whatever means that you can. That's what it said in verse 12. And so we aren't told in either their example or this last example that there's a specific amount of money that's being given because it's not about the money. It's just not. Do you see that? It's about our hearts. It's about having this outward focus, these outward eyes and a heart that says, God, this is yours. What do you want me to do with it? And so what would it look like for you to take a step in generosity today? What would that look like? What would that look like? I've, um, I'll be honest, I've dreaded this message all week, okay? Uh, I'll be 100% honest with you. I've told many of you this, okay? Uh, I actually didn't want to teach on this, um, but I was really convicted about it convicted about it in my own life. And um, like I've said, I guess I was really fearful because uh, I feared you guys really wouldn't see my heart behind this. Um, I feared you'd think that our church is just greedy or something. But all you gotta do is probably look at our budget and realize we're not. Uh, it's very <laughs> poor. <laughs> um, but believe me, I understand that way of thinking uh, because I've, I've thought that way a lot in my life too. I've seen churches both close and from afar. I've seen the greed of churches wanting to just like build a comfy kingdom while the world is, a lot of people are destitute and poor. And I hate that. But here's the crux of this whole matter, okay? 
okay? This is a gospel issue, okay? This is a massive gospel issue. And that's why I've been so convicted that we need to sit under God's word in this way because of it being a gospel issue. Because the gospel actually informs why we should be generous. It tells you why you should be generous. You see this in verses eight through nine, okay? Before we dive into those last two things, um, just think about this for a second. This is really important before we dive into why. Because I think there's a lot of reasons why you might want to be generous this morning. Or why you look around the world and you see generosity and you're like, I like that. That's a good person. And the reasons are this. There's two reasons, I think, why we want to be generous. One is we want to look like we're a pretty good person. And so we, we want to be generous because, I mean, who's ever looked at a generous person and is like, that guy's a jerk? Right? I mean, who's ever thought that? You look at a generous person, you're like, wow, that person's great. Look how generous they are. We applaud generosity, do we not? Right? But the thing is, most people in the world, we want to be generous simply because we want to feel like we're a good person. Because we want other people to think we're a pretty nice person. Or maybe this morning, you would want to be generous because you think by being generous, God owes you something then. You could force his hand in your life. Or you think that by being generous, that God has to accept you or he'll accept you more. Or that he, maybe he loves you, but he'll love you more, right? All that is is empty legalistic religion, if that's why you think you should be generous. Because we have two very different reasons why. The first, we see that we should be generous so that we can prove that our love is actually genuine. Look in verse 8. It says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. I mean, that's intense. Think about this. That is intense. That's a big deal. That is a huge claim, but it's true because this is how it works. If I, Jason, if I say to you, I love you, man, and you have a big need and I can meet that need, and I say, nah, -uh, I ain't giving you my stuff, but I love you in the same breath, I just proved I don't really love Jason, right? That's how this works. If you really love people, you open your hands to your things because you love them. So you're generous and you prove that your love is genuine. That's what Paul is saying here. Our giving to others and our relaxing our, our white knuckle grip off of our stuff and then giving it to God proves our love for God and proves our love for other people. It shows that we're not just these narcissistically obsessed in love with ourselves people. That's what it does. But there's this profound love in our hearts because what? Money flows effortlessly to that which is its God. And if God is love and we love because he first loved us, then our generosity proves our love for God and other people. Giving and love go hand in hand, you guys. But secondly, and even greater, we see the most amazing reason of why we should be generous. You see it in verse 9. He says this, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Why should we be generous? Because Jesus has been exceedingly generous to us. Jesus, who was enthroned in perfection, 
with incredible beauty and majesty, who was experiencing the highest wealth that anyone could ever experience. He opened his hands to it and he humbled himself. He gave up his riches and he became human. But guys, Jesus didn't come and live in some palace somewhere. He wasn't fed grapes all day. He didn't bark out orders to bring him his favorite dishes and and fan him. No, he didn't live a wealthy life on earth, but the highest king of heaven willingly became a poor carpenter's son in a written off little town named Nazareth. And when he went about his ministry later in his life, Jesus, we're told, had no possessions. He had no place to actually lay his head. He was poor in spirit even on a cross for us. He had no earthly comforts. And then ultimately we see that he emptied himself of all of his riches. That's what Paul's getting out here. And he he died poor in spirit on the cross. He became spiritually bankrupt for our sin, because of our sin, so that you and whoever would put their faith in him would become not millionaires, not materially wealthy, but so that we could become wealthy beyond definition of what this world actually offers to you. Wealthy in an otherworldly kind of way. I mean, guys, do you see? Do you see? I mean, if you believe in Jesus, this is your story. This is the story of what's happening in the world. It's, it's true. It's not just a personal belief. It's the true story of the world. And we've experienced this strange and otherworldly generosity of God in the person of Jesus Christ. This this act of generosity of Jesus, it shows us that Jesus doesn't motivate us this morning out of guilt. He never uses guilt as a motivator in your life. God never does that. Why? Because guilt is so limited in its ability to actually affect change. Guilt can't sustain generosity. I mean, just think about what giving out of guilt uh, is like, okay? Just think about this for a second. Giving out of guilt, it just responds only to a singular need. That's all that it does. And I mean, just, just consider this. Giving out of guilt doesn't change us into generous people. It, it will never do that. It only asks the question. It only asks this. How much do I have to give so that I don't feel this way anymore? That's what being motivated by guilt does. It doesn't transform our hearts. It just makes us ask, how low does the standard of my life need to be in order to appease my conscience? That's what being motivated by guilt does. And God doesn't motivate with guilt. It's actually his desire and his purpose that the gospel would compel us. Our response to the needs of our church family and other church family and really the needs of the world all around us is based on what God has done for us in Christ. Our giving, guys, is to reflect Christ who gave of his riches to lift us out of the poverty of our souls. And because we've experienced a generous God, that moves us to be generous people. It does. And let me tell you, for for many people who don't know Jesus in our world, the idea of God being generous, it feels more like a rumor than it does a concrete reality. I mean, in a consumeristic, affluent culture like ours here in the West, in our economic climate, that the world is wondering, I think, if, if the rumors of a generous God are true. And the church is the place, we are the people, where God wants to prove to the world that the rumors really are true. 
And when an affluent city like Corvallis sees a poor church like ours, right, giving above and beyond the generosity that we have to be a blessing to our world, that is a powerful display that, yes, it is true, we worship and follow an excessively generous God, and we've experienced otherworldly generosity and grace in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, that does something to my heart. I came across this letter years ago, and honestly, it, it wrecked me, and it became a prayer of mine for our church and really for the church at large. Because what had happened is Jesus had risen from the dead, he had ascended, and people began to follow him, and the church began to form. And there was a Caesar in the Roman Empire named Caesar Hadrian. And he sent out his little buddy Aristides to kind of do some journalistic work about these new people that were forming called Christians. He said, I want you to go out and just scout them out, like, who are these people? What are they about? Are they going to cause this uproar? You know, are they going to be a threat to our kingdom here in Rome? And so this guy went out, and he wrote a letter about what he found out about this church. And I just want to read you part of it. It'll be on the screen. This is what, they, this is what he said in his letter to Caesar Hadrian. These people, they love one another. And he who has gives to him who has not, without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and they rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. That is strange, right? Is that not strange? I mean, could you imagine someone being like, I don't have any food, and you're like, oh, don't worry, I just won't eat for a couple days, you can have mine. But that's like what they're doing. And this guy who isn't a Christian, who hasn't been regenerated by the Holy Spirit in his life or something, he looks at these people and he's like, I can't explain it, there's something otherworldly about them. There's something divine in their midst. This is a new people. How can this be? Because they experienced the generosity of God for them in Jesus, and it shaped them into completely, radically different people. Our generosity, you guys, it's a visible sign of invisible grace in this world. Why, why should we be generous? Well, it's not we should be generous to make ourselves look good. And it's definitely not because we believe that God will accept us then. It's because we have daily experienced the generosity of Jesus. Guys, in our generosity, it puts his generosity on display to a world that has a white-knuckle grip on their stuff. This morning, I beg you, please, for the sake of Jesus, let's assess our lives. Would you say that the gospel has permeated your finances? Has the gospel permeated your, your stuff? Has the gospel permeated your time and your energy? What does your money flow effortlessly to? And if you're a Christian, does that look any different than everybody else in the world? Does it? If you're here this morning and you're like, man, I, 
you know, and it's not pride, but you know you're a generous person. That's amazing. Be encouraged. Like, stay the course. Keep growing. But this morning, have your heart stirred by the generosity of God for you and Jesus. Have the fire stoked that you would keep growing. And for others, others honestly more like me, what would it look like for you to take a step and begin a desire to actually excel in generous living? Just like you desire to excel in love and faith and knowledge and all these other things. It's my hope and prayer that the branch, guys, that we would be a community of faith that daily experiences the generosity of Jesus and overflow then with generosity to our watching world. Father, we thank you so much for how we just, 